Tennessee Court Talk is a podcast presented by the Tennessee Supreme Court, Administrative Office of the Courts. The aim of the podcast is to improve the administration of justice in state courts through education and understanding. The target audience varies and is announced in the beginning of each episode. Welcome to Tennessee Court Talk. I'm your host, Barbara Peck, and today we are talking about Chancery Courts in Tennessee. This podcast is intended for all audiences. Our first guest is Chancellor J.B. Cox. He has been a Chancellor in the 17th Judicial District since 2000. Our second guest is Chancellor Pam Fleener. She has been a Chancellor in the 11th Judicial District since 2014. Our third guest is Chancellor John Rambo. He has been a Chancellor in the 1st Judicial District since 2013. Our fourth guest is Chancellor Michael Moyers. He has been a chancellor in the 6th Judicial District since 2000. And our fifth guest is Chancellor Tony Childress. He has been a chancellor in the 29th Judicial District since 2008. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, how are you? Look like like they got a couple of older folks go with these young chancellors. (laughs) Yes, it seems that way. So I was going to start this podcast with a very short, simple definition of what a chancery court is. But, as we are all about to learn, this is not so easy. So first, tell me first what Chancery Court is not, Chancellor Cox. Well, generally we hear uh, equity cases and some specialized cases throughout the state. What we normally don't hear are tort cases. What about criminal cases? We don't hear criminal cases, except by interchange. What about, so tell me a little bit about the interchange between General Sessions Court and Chancery Court. Do you have any sort of formal relationship with General Sessions Court? No. So no. what is a General Sessions Court? A General Sessions Court? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's our first tier court system. It is a limited jurisdiction court. It has jurisdiction over civil cases up to $25,000 and misdemeanors of uh, criminal and uh, juvenile matters, oftentimes based on jurisdiction and exclusive jurisdiction of unlawful detainer actions. Okay. So we have so General Sessions Court are the county courts. Criminal courts are criminal courts. General Sessions appeals go to circuit courts, either civil or criminal, never to chancery courts. Chancellors are your, and your circuit court judges and criminal court judges are your state judges and your Sessions judges are county judges. And it's also a distinction between courts of record and non, non-courts of record as well. And I never like to answer a question as a chancellor in an absolute because there's somewhere, I know there'll be one exception. Juvenile. Yeah, that's right. Well, I I used to be a general citizen judge before I became a chancellor, and there are instances in Tennessee where the general citizen judges are actually courts of uh, record, and that's in those general citizen courts that have uh, jurisdiction over uh, domestic relations matters. Uh, And it used to be some of them had uh, jurisdiction over workers' compensation matters. And a lot of times in the rural areas of the state, the general citizen judge is also the juvenile court judge, and there are cases where the juvenile court judge uh, is a court of record. All right, so we're still more confused. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit about the differences between chancery courts and circuit civil courts. So where is there overlap in jurisdiction, and where is there a pretty clear distinction? Chancellor Fleener. There are a lot of overlaps. Uh, the distinction is... Uh, the term is unliquidated damages in tort. Uh, what does that mean? Well, generally, you get a jury trial if you have a personal injury case, a health care liability case, uh, a slip and fall case, which is personal injury. Um, those type of cases where what are the damages? Um, well, it depends. And so 
you get a right to a jury trial in those, and those cases are exclusive circuit court cases. The cases that are exclusive to chancery are things such as delinquent tax cases, conservatorships, guardianships, probate, and then the, the, the other general civil cases that are overlapped and can be filed, domestic, can be filed in either circuit or chancery. And uh, Chancellor Moyers, tell us a little bit about the dockets in your, in your district, how it works. Well, in, in our district um, right now, I would say that probably better than 50% is domestic cases. Uh, and then the, the remainder is split up between conservatorships and uh, contract disputes and things like that. So we hear a lot of contract cases. We hear um, an awful lot of domestic child custody type cases. I do a lot of adoptions and termination of parental rights type cases. Um, the biggest distinction to me when I try to explain very quickly to people uh, who aren't really that, you know, who wouldn't know what a tort was if you told them is, is basically it's rare that chancellors have jury trials and very common for them to be in circuit court. So uh, in, in Knox County, the, the circuit courts are a well-oiled machine for the handling of juries where it throws us all into kind of a tizzy. We have to figure out how to do it every time one comes. So that's, that's one working distinction I think that people can understand. And Chan Chancellor Rambo, how about your docket? What does it look like compared to a civil circuit docket? It's similar to Knox County. Uh, vast majority of our cases and the most time in my courtroom does focus on domestic and termination of parental rights. The termination cases can be heard in juvenile or circuit, but if the juvenile court does the termination, the adoption portion has to come to either circuit or chancery, so I, I get that too. We normally do those before the court starts in the morning, uh, regular nine o'clock docket, I'll do the adoption starting about 8.15, and those are done in chambers. We have a National Adoption Day celebration coming up uh, the Saturday before Thanksgiving. So we'll have about 20 adoptions that we will do on a special court session on a Saturday. And we'll have firefighters and fire trucks and community activities to go along to celebrate adoptions. So Chancellor Cox, you're in a little bit more of a rural district compared to some of the other chancellors that are here. So how does your docket look compared to a civil circuit? Well, I think there's a lot of overlap that exists in, in my world. Um, Traditionally, in our jurisdiction, the large majority of the divorce and custody cases have migrated to the Chancery Court because the circuit court has been busier with handling the tort matters. So there is a migration that way that's just natural based on our, our culture. Uh, I think that, that probably my docket would appear to be a little dis, less organized on, on the first part of the day if you just walked in than it might be if it was in a more urban setting or if it was the circuit court's docket, but we both try to be efficient in that circumstance. The other thing that I've thought about that while we've been going around the room that might be more uh, easily identified with the chancery court is that, that you might have a boundary line dispute there that you wouldn't have in, in circuit court. And when we get to that type of boundary line dispute, you might have a jury of you that's going to be for a, a jury of less than 12 people. So there's some uniqueness that relates to the chancery court that would have come in, in that type of setting. Um, and I guess one of the interesting things for me to, that makes it different than the circuit court is that it, I think that we have an, a tendency, I don't know whether this is true in an urban setting, but rurally to take all of the more unusual cases. Uh, those those things that don't fit neatly in a box otherwise 
um, usually come in in the form of a declaratory judgment action to the Chancery Court as opposed to the Circuit Court. And I think that's probably based more on tradition than actual jurisdiction. But I'm pleased to see it because it makes life more interesting and different than it, than it would be otherwise. I have four counties in my district. And interestingly, from one county, the largest county, half of the domestic cases are filed in Chancery and half in Circuit. These are all the same judges, but the smallest county, 90% of domestic cases are filed in, ch in Chancery as compared to Circuit. The other counties, it's about two-thirds in Chancery compared to Circuit. So you have the local attorneys, the county bars, they tend to migrate to Chancery or Circuit. So 95 counties in the state of Tennessee, what is typical domestic practice in one county before Circuit may be Chancery in a different county? So here's the magic question. For things like domestic and divorce, who decides whether it goes to circuit or whether it goes to chancery? The litigants. The parties. The parties. Mm -hmm. The parties. So how would a lawyer decide? Is this, is it like judge shopping? Do I get to judge shop or? Judge shopping, that's, 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 a, that's a dangerous way to put it. But I, I do think that different courts have different ways of doing things. Um, in Knox County, we have the Fourth Circuit Court, which uh, is designed specifically to be a family law court. Um, it operates under its own special rules, and some attorneys prefer to come to Knox County where we have fewer rules that are special to that particular court. So it really does depend on, on where the litigants and their attorney think that they're probably going to have the best chance of success. My colleagues like to point out to me that one of the, and from a circuit judge's perspective, one of the biggest differences is we appoint our court clerk. The circuit court clerks are elected uh, every four years. The clerk and masters who serve the chancery court are appointed for a six-year term, the six years measured from the date of their appointment. So we get to select the clerks who work for us and have the advantages and benefits of that. Okay. So under the Tennessee Constitution, every judicial district has a chancery court and a circuit court. But Tennessee is fairly unique in having, still having circuit or chancery courts at all, um, along with Delaware, Mississippi, New Jersey, and South Carolina. So what are the origins of chancery courts, Chancellor Cox? I don't know that I'm, uh, that I'm qualified to go all the way back to England and say where, uh, that it started, but uh, I believe it originated out of England. Uh, I can't give you the, the uh, specific king um, that was there because I'm not that great of a chancery historian, but I commend you to a TBA article that does a great job of outlining uh, that entire process. But basically there, there was a king in, in England that decided that the law courts were too burdensome for the people that had to plead before him, and he wanted the court to be his own consciousness, to be able to handle those things that weren't easily handled handleable in other places and he, there was a basis in that chancery court and I hope it's still a basis today that there are equitable principles that uh, inform the lives of the litigants that are before the chancery court and those principles are used to guide decision making in those cases where the law doesn't provide a remedy so I think that's the difference I think you get uh, a greater opportunity for creativity for differentiation and remedy uh, and for uniqueness in the chancery court Maybe I'm just biased because I'm a chancellor, but that's the origin. So this idea of equitable solutions instead of strict law, do you feel like that still applies today in chancery courts? 
Well, I feel like that, that it applies in less degree than it has applied in the past, and that is because there is concurrence of jurisdiction in so many things in our state. But I think that there's still a place for um, that type of pleading to be able to help extend the law by way of policy or otherwise. And I think that, that it hope, I hope that it never goes away as far as that part of it goes. Uh, when you talk about an equ equitable maxim that equity deems done that ought which be done, I think that's something as a goal that we ought to aspire to. And Chancellor Moyers, what do you think about equitable solutions being more likely in Chancery Court than in Circuit Court? Well, I mean, that's specifically what we have uh, jurisdiction for. Most states, as you mentioned earlier, have combined uh, the Chancery with the Circuit powers. The federal court combines the equity powers and the law powers into one court. We're fairly unique in that we haven't done that. So that, that puts the Chancery Court in a position where it can forge solutions that perhaps circuit judges don't have the authority to do. And that does give us the opportunity to, to do some things uh, for people that, uh, that maybe some the pure law courts couldn't do. But at the same time, one of the other maxims of equity is that equity follows the law. So we're not free to just toss the, the green books out and form our own solutions. We do have to work within uh, the precedent and within statutes, but I think we have a bit more breathing space than the law courts um, to form solutions that work for people. And Chancellor Childress, what about your court? My docket is similar to uh, the other four chancellors. Uh, it's mostly civil, uh, domestic. I have a lot of civil stuff, a lot of domestic. Um, one thing I have in my district is I have a prison, uh, well, two prisons actually, and I hear a lot of appeals from prison disciplinary boards. Uh, their administrative appeals, and when they've been disciplined, you know, had some of their privileges taken away, they appeal to the Chancery Court, and you just review the record that was created in the disciplinary board of the prison and you make a determination, and I don't know if any of the other four chancellors have a prisoner or not. I think one of the things, going back to the equitable solutions, that uh, chancery courts are better situated in handling than circuit courts is, in chancery courts, the majority of the cases that are tried is the, the trier of fact is the judge. We're the ones that make the ultimate decisions. There's not a jury to make those decisions. And there's no telling how many thousands of trials I've had since I've been a chancellor. And I'll give you an example of formulating a parenting plan for uh, people who are divorcing who have children. It would be very difficult, I think, for a jury who um, doesn't do that type of uh, work on a consistent basis to to, to look at the factors and try to come up with something like that. I mean, it's there's there's law involved in that. There are factors involved in that, but a lot of that just comes with with experience and knowing what to do. So I I, I know it's not equity, but it's kind of a a, a more of a fluid uh, experience based. At least that's my opinion. So if I'm looking for a remedy that's not necessarily monetary, then perhaps I should be looking at a chancery court. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Specific performance, for instance, of a contract or real estate. Um, in fraud cases, there's a lot of equitable remedies. Uh, we can rescind a contract and we can create constructive trust and uh, give the money to where it should be the rightful owner. Um, so there are more options. 
and, and circuit judges can do this as well. I mean, they have the jurisdiction to do it. It just seems that since the creation of our state, that type of, um, those types of cases have gone to the, how many of us are there in the state? 33? 33 chancellors of the state, 33 chancellors serve about 6.7 million people. So there's not very many of us. So are the, are the court procedures and court rules different in chancery court than they are in circuit court? It depends on the it depends on the district. Some districts have separate chancery court rules. Many districts have uniform rules where the same uh, local rules would apply to both courts. So it, you just as a practitioner, you have to know your judicial district and consult your local rules to see if chancery has different. And there may be some, even if they're the same supplemental rules. A lot of times, chancellors have probate and they'll have separate probate rules or maybe rules that apply to a delinquent tax suit or something that might be a little different. If your question was, do the Tennessee Rules of Civil Procedure and the Tennessee Rules of Evidence to p apply to uh, cases that are tried or filed in Chancery Court, the answer is yes, they do apply to us. But but I, I think he's hit on something, um, Chancellor Rambo hit on something very, uh, it's important, and that is that uh, when you're operating, the first thing you need to do is see if the local court has uh, local rules. Uh, a, a chancellor uh, once remarked that, that if somebody wanted to hide something, the best place to put it is in the local rules of court because nobody ever looks at them. And, and that's really true. And you can be seriously ambushed if you go into a court like Knox County uh, where we have circuit court rule, uh, local rules, we have chancery court local rules, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal, or Fourth Circuit Court, I'm sure has its own set of uh, fairly intricate rules, and you have to know those. Um, so just knowing the rules of civil procedure uh, may get you in trouble if you're operating in a court that has its own local rules. Westlaw uh, is a place where you can go uh, under the state rules and find which counties have local rules, and generally they have them published on Westlaw, so you can look at those. And I'll add to that, the Tennessee uh, the Administrative Office of the Court website has all of the uh, local rules of the judicial districts in it as well. And, and I don't want get people to get the impression that because Chancery Court's different that we're not collegial and that we're not cooperative. <clears throat> I think all the chancellors across the state go to great lengths to try to cooperate with the circuit bench as well as all litigants to try to make sure that access to justice is taken care of. But I, I think each in each locale, situations can be different and therefore local rules probably should be different. Uh, I know that I approach conservatorships in my judicial district in a way different than they do in Hamilton County, where Chancellor Flaner's um, um, the, the chancellor, different than they do in Dyersburg, where Tony Childress is the chancellor. So I make my folks watch a, a video before they take on that fiduciary responsibility. That's fairly unique within the state, but I've, I've found it to be important. Other other chancellors, uh, according to their local rules, will be they'll hand out a pamphlet or something along those lines. But I guess I'm trying to reiterate the point of know your, know your court, know your locale, know your local rules. Um, I think that is probably the best formula. I think that's especially important if you're going to practice in probate because that really varies from even county to county within a judicial district. You may have a clerk and masters who were attorney practicing attorneys before they became clerk and master, and the chancellor in that district may give them more authority, which they can, to hear a lot of the probate matters. In other counties, the, the chancellor may handle it all. 
and, and in other counties, the probate matters either still with the county court or with a specialized court, depending on how big the the area is. Mm -hmm. In my in my district, the 11th judicial district, which is a single county district, Hamilton, uh, more of the domestic cases are filed in circuit rather than chancery. I think that's the same in Davidson County as well, and it's just by choice. Um, but when we don't have a uh, one of the prisons in our locale, but we do hear a lot of review of administrative agency decisions, uh, beer board, the taxi board, uh, unemployment compensation. Appeals from school boards. School board. I'm trying to think. Of, oh, condemnation. We also hear, right, zoning beer appeal. Boards. We hear condemnation cases. We hear um, uh, if uh, demolition cases, Property's been condemned by the city, and the and the owner wants to appeal that. We those are the type of cases. So a lot, I think one thing about Chancery is here's a lot of the property cases. Chancellors have jurisdiction over all the property within their county. So let's talk a little bit about the appeals. What what percentage of your docket is is made up of appeals? Uh, if you're talking about an administrative review, probably less than five percent in a year. But all the administrative appeals in your district go to Chan Chancery Court, or do some go to Circuit? I think they all have to. It's, it, it is interesting to me, because I used, before I became a chancellor, I was in the county attorney's office, and I did lots and lots of administrative appeals from various boards that I represented. But since I've been a chancellor, I've seen very few of those cases, surprisingly few. Um, and you talked a little bit about how there's a separate clerk. So if your attorney is filing, your papers are going to be filed somewhere different in Chancery Court than they are in Circuit Court. So talk about that for a second. Well, I, from my perspective, it's just a matter of where you gravitate to and the type of case that you're filing. So as you begin the practice of law, you learn what type of case that you're bringing to which court, which most appropriately fits there, and then you, you find your way, whether it's in a single county in, in two different floors on a different building or in multi-counties, it's usually the same, just on a smaller uh, smaller scale as far as that, that part of it goes. Um, I, I always stress in my clerk and masters that we want to try to be a place to be an inviting uh, place to, to have cases filed and have an opportunity to, to very interact very well with the public whether they be represented by people or pro se in that circumstance and all of my clerk and masters understand that which I think is a, a place of influence that the circuit judge might not enjoy to the same extent I think I think there's something that you learn as you begin the practice of law I know that was true for me when I started it's just a matter of trying to make sure you understood which place that your case went if you had an opportunity to be an advocate for your client to make a choice out of two choices you did the best job for your client and otherwise it's just a matter of getting to know everybody which I think is vitally important. One of the things that I was first told by the partner in the law firm that hired me uh, first day he took me to the clerk's office and the advice that I was given as a green lawyer was get to know your court clerks at least one or two in there that uh, you can ask questions and sometimes you may have a lawsuit you've not handled before but you could ask them uh, have you ever seen one of these cases before they'll tell you and they can pull the file and you can look at it and learn from what other attorneys have done so his statement and I don't think it's as dramatic as that that uh, a clerk can make or break you but they can certainly be very helpful to a new attorney or any attorney 
But just because we appoint them doesn't mean they're their job is any different than the circuit court clerks or general sessions clerks or juvenile court clerks. But when I appoint my clerks and masters, one thing I tell them, I stress on them is, you do not get to decide what types of cases can be filed in Chancery Court. If somebody brings something in, in there and you know it is wrong, you still file that case because it's my job to determine whether or not they could. And not to give people help, that's not why I'm telling them that. Because the reason I tell them that is they could be wrong at some point in time and uh, turn somebody away when it was proper. And that's that's our jobs. So let's talk about that for a second. Have any of you ever had a case overturned on appeal because it was in Chancery Court versus Circuit, Civil Circuit, or vice versa? I don't. I'd, I'd like to claim that I acted that much extrajudicially, but I, I don't believe that I have. We actually have, a, I think we have an obligation to determine whether or not we have subject matter jurisdiction over over matters. And, and, and if we don't find that we do not have subject matter jurisdiction, there's a statute that says we're to transfer it to the proper court. And we've all done that many yeah. times. But there's never been a case appealed for that reason. So usually the chancellors are getting it right. They're transferring it. We've never had a case no, that's like, oh, table, the chancellor no. sitting and heard this. <laughs> that this, so. case, this case can't happen. I, well, there may be some cases where everybody believed always that, that you had jurisdiction to do this, and then you get a new, appellate, a, a new opinion from the appellate court that says, oh, by the way, Y'all no longer have juris public, I mean, jurisdiction to do this. There's, there's always interesting close calls, like where you, somebody will bring a, a, a case that has two or three different causes of action. And at some point, all of the causes of action that aren't tort, they might be a mixed you know, um, equity and tort cases. And at some point, all the equity causes of action get dismissed. And so all that remains is the tort cause of action. And it's always been a real interesting question to me whether or not we retain jurisdiction. I think the law is that we do, but it does seem rather odd to me that you can create subject matter jurisdiction in Chantry Court by bringing even a frivolous equity claim attached to a tort claim. That, that would not be a, a very scrupulous way of doing business, but I think it's, a, it's something that can be done if we retain jurisdiction even after the equity um, causes of action have been dismissed. So let's talk about the equitable um, remedies that are available. So tell me about either the most unique or the most interesting remedy you've ever ordered. Accountings are ordered often in Chancery Court, which is a reference to a special master to actually go through the debits and credits between the parties and render an accounting, which then the court would review to determine whether there were damages. I think most remedies nowadays are more of a blend of equity and law, kind of like the parenting plans that I was talking about. I mean, it's no, the law is typically cut and dry on most things, but on issues where it involves children and things like that, I think it's, it's a blend of these are the law factors you're supposed to look at, but then you apply you know what's in the best interest of the of the child well that to me that's kind of an equitable remedy i think of uh, property sales which we have a lot of and uh, i may direct a real estate person to go to the farm and lay out options on how it could be divided 
and I, and when I order my sale, I may say, let's sell this parcel, this parcel, let's group them, or let's sell the entire farm. And really the judge is creating potential remedies there to try to maximize the value to the sale. There's no legal true principle guiding that. It's just what's the equitable thing to do to make the most value for that property when it's being sold. And have you, who here has had a jury trial? Has any of you had a jury trial? Oh, everybody's raising their hand. So you do have jury trials in Chancery Court every now and then. So tell me about when you have a jury trial versus when you just refer it over to Circuit Circuit Court. In Chancery, we end up having to write a lot of our uh, jury instructions. And I use the interrogatory method where I try to get my questions down to where the jury is answering factual questions and trying to get them to answer yes and no to simplify it because when it's all said and done, the chancellor still applies the law but is bound by the factual determinations of issues by the jury. So you can't pick up the uh, model pattern jury instructions and flip to the chancery section because there's not one. So I, I charge the attorneys with making the first drafts of those. I try to get them to agree or have a joint set of uh, instructions and interrogatories, but it's when it's all said and done, the chancellor is responsible for what he or she puts in front of that jury to decide in the jury instructions. There's, a, there's actually a type of case, and I, the type of it is escaping my mind right I think now. consumer Word. protection. Well, uh, cases call for well, juries, and, and I think... Uh, and there's another where, um, let's say you were let go at work because of maybe you were with child or your age. Yeah, discrimination cases. Yeah, discrimination cases, you are entitled to a jury trial in Chantry, but you're not entitled to a jury trial in Circuit. And I did not know that until last week when I had one transfer from Circuit to Chantry. And, and, I, and it's a tort case. Right. I like the flexibility that we have in Chancery Court and the uniqueness that we have in Chancery Court. I've had uh, I had a boundary line dispute that was that I tried uh, about this time last year, uh, and my lawyers came to me through the middle and said, "You know, Judge, we want to try this in front of six as opposed to twelve, which is almost unheard of, honestly." But they they made that agreement, and we decided to go forward and and do that and. So far, so good, although we have motions pending on that about what hasn't been done since the verdict was was had. And I think that when you apply a jury principle to a jury of view on a case where someone's landlocked or there's been a use that's been cut off by the county or and those, those particular members of the jury panel are um, basically asked to take the shortest, most practical way from point A to point B to create an uh, access uh, to a piece of property. That's a very unique way that a jury is applied in, in Chancery Court. Uh, and I, I may differ some from some of these other folks. I have a, a past prosecutorial background, so I'm gonna try to start out by with, with some of those pattern instructions and gonna make them fit for, for a jury. but. One of the interesting things about doing it on our side is that if you have a uniqueness of remedy that's being asked for um, in, in whatever context, it usually comes out in the jury instructions, which has a, a way of making its way into the law over time if you're upheld in that case goes on appeal. So, And it, it, 
part of this is how proactive are you going to be as a judge. I've had one jury a view that I was actually the bus driver. So we went out to the, to the particular location to force a, a, a way out for a, to, from a road to a, a, over a piece of property. And we did that while I was, I was just available that day, and we didn't have enough other personnel. So we, we did I that. I didn't know your judicial district had a bus. Well, you know, I'm going to have to talk to LC Yeah, on absolutely. That. You need to be educated about that. Well, I think we got a loan from a church. But anyway, that's a whole different discussion. But that part of it is very, very interesting and unique to us, and I think those remedies are, are neat. Uh, and, and the way they come out. I'm, I'm sort of like uh, Chancellor Rambo. I don't necessarily use the interrogatory method, but I, I force the attorneys in that situation to think about the instructions. They have to have them to me ahead of time in advance for us to be able to hash them out and to take care of them before they actually go in front of the jury. I think on the civil side, it cuts down the the possibility of having jury out hearings and for young lawyers that's probably a good place to cut your teeth because you're going to have less th of those than you might have doing criminal defense work so i think those are important things to talk about and the jury instructions are really tailored to the particular cause of action and there's so many in chancery it's like you're inventing the will each time you have a jury demand i ask the attorneys to submit proposed jury instructions to me then I include in my order, if you do not, that you're waiving any objections to the other side, just to spur them on. So besides the jury instructions, is there any other way an attorney should prepare differently for a trial in chancery court versus circuit court? I, I would say yes, very much so, because trying a case in front of a, a judge, at least as every judge has their own style. Um, I've had lawyers describe my court as a hot court um, because I get very interactive with the attorneys um, for me that's fun so you know if you're trying a case in front of a jury a jury's just gonna sit there and listen but if you're trying a case in front of me you can pretty much bet that it's gonna be more like an appellate court experience and I'm gonna be questioning you about every aspect of your case so um, I, I think that lawyers that are practicing in front of, in bench trials uh, really need to be prepared to defend their positions probably much more so than, than they would be required to do in a jury trial. I've experienced a lot of attorneys, because it's a bench trial, will just skip the opening statement, skip the closing argument. I like to hear the opening statement and the closing argument. So my advice to the young practitioner, new practitioner, or any practitioner is be prepared. Give your opening statement, closing argument. I think you're entitled to do that, but... Uh, don't assume that the judge does not want to hear your thoughts, and that's the best time to give your thoughts on the case. 99.9% .9 of the trials I have are bench trials. If I have 1,000 trials, I'll have 999 bench trials. Um, so to prepare for that, I would give the advice that probably the case you're trying is not the first case of that particular type that the judge has seen, has gone through, and really, really focus on the, the facts and the factors that we have to consider in a lot of these equi equitable cases. And I'll say this, if you're questioning someone and you're trying to get something in that's kind of inflammatory, if the, if the judge has set his or her pencil down and they're not taking notes, they're probably not very interested in that and you move on to something else. 
And, and I, maybe I'm taking a contrarian position here, but I think that as we do this job sitting on the bench side, that there are times that we need to be educated or re-educated. So I would tell a young lawyer, never lose an opportunity to persuade the judge. Um, if, if the bar in your area generally doesn't put in briefs to the court beforehand, might be a good idea to put in a brief to the court. If you're in the chancery court uh, and you're looking for a remedy that you can't find a case supported by a circuit court and you still want that remedy, you might be able to try to spend some extra time to try to persuade that court that what you're seeking is the right thing to do, the equitable thing to do. So you'd give more attention to persuasive authority and more attention to those equitable principles in the way that you argued the case before the court. I, I will agree that there are times when I know that I don't need argument in domestic relations cases because I've heard those a significant amount of time. But especially for young attorneys in that situation, that, that waiver precludes you an opportunity to, per, to try to persuade the judge, and you might have thought of something that came in the proof that he or she didn't think of. And so I think that's important uh, along those lines. And I would add for the young, the newer attorneys, uh, listen to what the judge is saying because a lot of times they are, that judge is communicating to you what he or she wants to hear. So you may have your formula that I'm going to ask this and I'm going to concentrate on this in the trial, but the judge is already telling you this is the part I'm interested in if you take the time and listen to what the judge says. We spent some time today talking about 15 factors on determining a parenting plan, and I see this a lot in a domestic case. There's questions about alimony, and there's a lot of different factors on determining that, I just mentioned 15 factors on a parenting plan. And then there's uh, factors relating to the division of property and debts. But we will spend two-thirds of the trial talking about who is at fault, which is one factor out of maybe 30 different factors that we're looking at. So don't necessarily play to your client who just wants to talk about the breakdown of the marriage Remember, you got a responsibility to take care of the whole case, and that's where the good lawyer will cover the various factors. Well, that was, that was kind of what I was trying to get at when I said the judge has probably heard a thousand of these types of cases. Get to the important. It's all important. It's all important. Get to the important part, and when you're doing like domestic work or any type of case where the statute says you've got to consider every one of these factors, it may be good to just get you a, a, an outline and ask questions about every one of those factors because I spend a lot of my time in a trial in domestic cases cl cleaning up things that people just didn't ask. Okay, there's another child out of here from another marriage. What's that child's name? What's their date of birth? Things I got to put in there. Asking people about, okay, how much is your the health insurance premium you spend on uh, for the children? I mean, those are all imp very important things, even though they're not the the hot things that people sometimes want to talk about. Yeah, and that communication can be verbal or nonverbal from the court. I mean, if Chancellor Rambo's telling you, let's move on, that's verbal communication. If uh, Chancellor Moyers put his pencil down and he quit the appellate review process that goes on in his court, it's probably time to move to the next thing. And as a judge, you don't want to try the case for the attorney, or you do you want to do anything that may uh, be perceived as trying to embarrass them? 
are, we we're don't assisting want to do one that. side versus the other. Yes, but but there but there are things that we have to know, and, and that if I was talking to a young attorney, I'd say, be certain to do that. And I have a young attorneys come to me. They say, what's the most important thing that you look for in every case? I say, I look for service and notice. Because if you don't have service of the complaint or notice of the hearing, your day's over with. Those are very small things to, um, or easy things to accomplish, very small things. I think they're often overlooked, or at least I said a lot that will, at least when you come in front of me, it'll shut you down. So how many, well, what percentage of your cases are pro se litigants? It's becoming, since the uh, Tennessee Supreme Court uh, initiated the Access to Justice uh, program, it has become more and more and more. It first started out with uh, uncontested divorces where you had no children and, and, and you agreed on your property. And now they have um, expanded it to include uh, uncontested divorces with, uh, with, with children. Now, the key is uncontested. Well, when they file those uh, forms that they, that they can get off the ALC's website, that opens up a court case. That doesn't mean they're uncontested. So a lot of times, we're the ones having to sort through all of this stuff and walk a fine line between, not, we do not practice law, but trying to find a way to tell people what they need to do without us uh, getting into that realm of practicing law. But to answer your question, I figured mine's about 35%. And it's getting more into more different things. I had a pro se adoption about a year ago. I think it's, I think it's probably a, a larger percentage in rural areas than in urban areas, at least at this point. I, I concur with you. I think that my, um, my docket relative to pro se has grown substantially, uh, especially since the introduction of the, of the AOC forms that also include children. There are some days that it's 30% of my docket. And on the order, order protection cases, I would say 95% of those are pro se. Yes, almost all of them. And I I don't have a problem with pro se people. They have the right to do it. Um, It's just that it it takes more and more and more time. Let's talk about why did you become chancellors? What was was appealing about chancery court versus being a circuit court judge or being a different type of judge? Why why a chancellor? Well, in my case, it was because it is different cases. Um, The year that I ran, there was a chancery court position open and a circuit court position open. Both judges were retiring, and I did not care to go run for a circuit court judge because in, in my district, that's mostly domestic cases. And in um, Chancery Court, was it's different every day. It is the variety, the breadth and scope of the jurisdiction is so much broader. And that's, and that's fun to me. And I was practicing in it almost exclusively and it felt like I developed an expertise. So that was an easy choice. Chancellor Morris. It's the same for me. I, I determined very early in my career that this is what I wanted to do. And I think in my case, it was primarily because I wanted to be the guy making the decisions. Um, I didn't want to be riding herd over juries every day. I wanted to be the person who who heard the facts and the evidence and made the decision. And that appealed to me and still does. Chancellor Childress? Some days I'm trying to still figure out why I wanted to be a chancellor. Uh, But all kidding aside, 
before I was a chancellor, I was general sessions judge and juvenile court judge. Before I was that, I worked for the Tennessee Court of Appeals as their staff attorney for six years. I was in, my background was civil work and domestic work in those areas uh, because on the, even on the general sessions part, there's a huge part of general sessions that's civil. And since, at least in the judicial district I'm in, the circuit court handles more most of the criminal cases, I get maybe one or two percent of them, and the Chantry Court handles probably 99 percent of the civil work. Uh, that's that's where I wanted to be, is on the civil side. I was a county attorney before I became judge, and I had not thought Chancery versus Circuit. I wasn't really even thinking about being a judge, but my predecessor retired. And I had some attorneys that called me and said, you should consider this. And I was at that point in my career that if I was going to be judge, it seemed like that was the time to shift gears as far as my legal career. And so if it had been circuit judge I had retired, I probably would have applied for that. So there's nothing glorious in how I went about it. It was the, I would have been happy with either position. From I'm sort of like uh, Chancellor Rambo and, and that situation I had I was presented with the what I believe to be the the best opportunity for me to be able to go on to the bench at the time that I ran and so I ran against a um, an appointee who had had a limited amount of experience at the time that that I ran I, I can't I come from a sort of varied background even being from the same hometown for all that time so for me, it was a matter of if, if I was going to get an opportunity that this was when the opportunity presented itself. Uh, at the time, it was, um, I don't know that everybody thought like I thought that I was gonna be able to, to prevail in that circumstance. And at the time that I came on the chancery bench, I was probably the youngest or next to the youngest in the state for coming on to the bench. And so I've been there a good long time and I'm finally to the age where I'm maybe look like the judge that folks picture when they think about uh, that from the outside, but it's been- You a, do. A, thank you, Tony, I appreciate that. <laughs> it's been a very, very interesting experience, but I, I will say that, that one of the jurists that I valued the most uh, in my early practice for law was Chancellor Cobb. Um, he took the time to mentor a young lawyer, took the time to be able to be accessible, was interested in all that uh, Chancery Court meant. By that I mean the types of cases that are normally there and all the interesting other cases that are unique, was absolutely always curious and interested in expanding his knowledge of the law and he was a great people person and he ran a great court. So in, in that aspect, my, my mentor from before the time that I was on the Chancery bench provided the type of inspiration that I think that you would need to aspire to be a chancellor. Uh, there are days that I miss trying criminal cases because I started out as an assistant district attorney. So when I, I do that, if there's a conflict, I interchange over and I try those cases. So it's a good opportunity that still exists for me. But I do feel like over time that I'm in the place now that I, I'm supposed to be. Uh, in terms of being able to be the decision maker and to deal with interesting and unique remedies and to be able to handle most anything that comes from a bench perspective. And I'm pleased to be able to be 
in that in that spot, even though it didn't come from always aspiring to be the chancellor. I would throw in that one thing that I enjoy particularly about being a state court judge, and uh, I'm in a multi-county district, so I'm in three, sometimes four counties every week, and I enjoy traveling the circuit, going to different courthouses, interacting with different members of the bar, and to some extent, uh, each community has its own flavor, and that's, I enjoy going to the smaller counties. My off, main office is in my largest counties, but I look forward to traveling the circuit. And the one thing about being a chancellor in, I think, the multi-county districts as opposed to the single-county districts um, is if you, every now and then, you, you will get a criminal case. You'll get a tort case that was in circuit court. There's probably not, you'll get a juvenile court appeal because the circuit judge had a conflict and there's not another circuit judge to hear it. You'll get a general sessions appeal. You have the opportunity to hear your traditional chantry stuff, but you also get the opportunity to hear just about anything that comes down the pike at some point in time. And, you know, sometimes I, I, get, a, I get a boundary line dispute and I'm like, oh boy, I got a boundary line, and I'm excited because it's something different instead of just your regular domestic stuff. Or you get a, oh, I get to hear this juvenile appeal. Or I get to hear this general sessions appeal. You never, you never used to think you were going to be that excited about a boundary line dispute. I never did, but I am now. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone, for joining us on this edition of Tennessee Court Talk. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.